Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, as always, looking forward to studying God's Word with you. If you are new or visiting, my name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. Uh, this fall, we've been going through a study, studying the books of First and Second Peter. And uh, those are letters in the New Testament that are written by the Apostle Peter, and they're written to a group of Christians that are living in the Roman Empire, specifically in a part kind of around modern-day Turkey right now. And what was happening is that this group of Christians was starting to really come under some suffering and under some trials, and it was because of their allegiance to Jesus as king, and it was changing their lives in real, uh, substantial, noticeable ways. And what was happening is that the culture around them was seeing these differences, and they were kind of ostracizing them and pushing them to the margins and beginning to um, persecute them in some, in, in some ways. And during the time of the writing of these books, it was more of kind of a social ostracism that was happening. Uh, and it was happening in ways uh, in people's families and sometimes in people's workplaces. But in, less th- just, in just a few short years, that, that persecution would... would would become like the murdering of thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians under the Emperor Nero's rule and reign. And what's happening is that these Christians are living as citizens of a different kingdom. They're living as citizens of heaven instead of citizens of Rome. And it doesn't mean they've given up their Roman citizenship, but it means that their first allegiance is not to the king and country, but their first allegiance is to a new king, the ultimate king, King Jesus. And it was changing their lives. And what we saw last week is that part of that identity that they have been given, that that all of God's people have been given, is that we're called to demonstrate and we're called to declare the good news about who God is and all that he's done and what his kingdom is like. And last week as we studied, we saw that one of the ways that we get to demonstrate that is in the relationships that we have in people around us. And Peter articulates four relationships that are really important. And he says, and what we've seen and studied last week and this week and the next two weeks, is is it's all on the same idea that we have been called and freed to respect and submit to human authority for the sake of the gospel. We've been called and freed to respect and submit to human authority for the sake of the gospel. Last week as we studied, we saw that as a Christian, how that relates to the government. And this week, Peter turns his attention to a different kind of relationship, another really key opportunity we have as God's people to reflect him and his kingdom to the world, and that's our relationships in the workplace. What I want us to see this morning as we study is that as God's people were called and were freed to respect and submit to even unjust authority in the workplace for the sake of the gospel. We are called and freed to submit to even unjust authority in the workplace for the sake of the gospel. Work is a huge part of our lives. Studies estimate that we spend literally a quarter of the hours we are awake over the course of our entire life. We'll spend nearly a quarter of of our waking hours at work. The only thing we spend more time doing than working is sleeping. And if you're a parent of young kids, you're like, no, 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 no. No, that, that is not correct, right? Just keep in mind, it's like a lifetime span, right? But what Peter is highlighting for us in our passage this morning isn't just that the relationships we have at work are important. But more specifically, what he's highlighting is that the way that we relate to authority at work, the way that we relate to authority in the workplace, especially when we're treated unjustly or unfairly, is a critical 
component of our witness. It is a critical component of the opportunity we get to demonstrate who God is and what he's like, to demonstrate his kingdom to the world. So you have to remember, Peter's writing to Christians who are being ostracized and marginalized, who are being pushed to the edges of society, who are being treated unjustly, who are being treated unfairly by the people that are around them, even, the, in, even in their places of work. It's really easy to work for a great boss. Right? I don't know about you, I've been blessed to work for a number of just really great bosses. And it's like you love working for those people. You feel like they bring the best out of you and you want to like put yourself under their leadership. But I, like everybody else, either has or will work for a terrible boss. I have, you may have. If you haven't yet, you probably will. And maybe they're not qualified for their job or maybe they're just not good at it or maybe they are harsh or unjust or maybe they use their authority for their own benefit and for the detriment of others. And so the question is, what do, you, what do you do with that? What do you do when you're under the authority of a boss that is not worthy of having that authority? What do you do when your boss isn't worthy of, the, of being respected or being submitted to? What do you do when, even though you feel like you're doing your best, you are still being treated unfairly? Oftentimes it feels like surrendering, oftentimes it feels like that experience when we're treated unjustly, it feels pointless, it feels meaningless. It's just like, this, this is terrible, I just want to get out of this. I want a different job or a different boss, or I'd rather just be the boss myself. And what Peter is saying, he's saying, wait. Wait, if you're a follower of Jesus... Not only does the unjust treatment that you are experiencing, not only does that have great purpose, it's also something that you've been called to and something you've been set free by Jesus himself to persevere in. So with that in line, let's read our passage this morning and we'll pray and dive into our study of God's word. We're in a First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he bore our sins in himself, in his body, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, like sheep, were going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks so much that like we would have a chance to sit under the authority of your word this morning. God, I just ask that um, our time together would be just like fruitful and good, that it would challenge the parts of our heart that need challenging from you. God, we just like just come to you like submission and, and honoring authority. Like that is just opposed to like our hearts and our culture in just about every way. And it rubs us the wrong way, God. And we just, we just come asking that you would soften us, that you'd give us eyes to hear and respond to your word this morning. Pray that you'd fill me with your spirit so that I'd like, be able to be helpful in any way. 
God, all this, we just pray all this that uh, it will result in our good and our growth and in your glory, God. So we come to you in those, in those ways. Amen. Amen. Well, first, the passage shows us, reminds us that we are called as God's people to, sub, to demonstrate the gospel by respecting and submitting to even unjust authority in the workplace. Verse 18, it opens and it says, Slaves, submit yourself to your early masters. Now, before we go any further, I, we just need to address the word slave. That word comes with a lot of baggage that needs some unpacking. One pastor I listened to this week, just really helpfully, he just pointed out two things that we really need to understand about that word. One, when you and I think about the word, uh, think about slavery, what, when, that, when that word comes up in our brain, what we think about is clearly and overtly condemned in the Bible in the strongest terms, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Slavery, uh, like the kind that we think of, like the kind that this country was built on, or the kind that we see now in sex slavery happening throughout our country and throughout the world, it begins with human trafficking. It begins with kidnapping. In places like Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24, they, they articulate things like this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, should be put to death. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing in a list of just deplorable sins that he articulates. Paul says he includes in that list enslavers, slave traders, and man-stealers. The Bible is fundamentally, objectively, absolutely opposed to slavery. The other thing that we need to know is that the slavery that Peter is writing about and the slavery in the Greco-Roman world was much different than the slavery that you and I think about. Murray Harris in his book, uh, Slave of Christ, he writes this about the differences between a Greco-Roman slavery and the New World slavery. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race or by speech or by clothing. They were sometimes more educated than their owners. They held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 or 20 years of service or or in their 30s at the very latest. They were not denied the rights to public assembly. They were not socially segregated. They could accumulate savings and they could buy their freedom. And their natural inferiority was not assumed. And so when Peter here is addressing slaves, he's speaking to a wide range of people, many of which in our day today would have been regarded as professionals, would have been regarded as managers of estates or physicians or teachers or tutors. And that's why a lot of times translations use the word servant here, not because they're trying to change the Bible or make it more uh, politically correct, but because slave just, it means something different to us than it did to the original audience that Peter is writing to. And I take time to point this stuff out because a lot of people just think that the Bible is kind of this old antiquated book that just oppresses people and that harms and hurts people. And we need to be honest. Sinful people, even people who have claimed Christ, have used passages like this in 1 Peter to promote and propagate and prop up the the slave trade and slavery in our own country. And they've used verses like this to even encourage apathy towards the abolishment of slavery. Our country has a horrific history, and Christians as well are not set aside from that. Christians have a, a pretty terrible history when it comes to apathy towards slavery. 
But the Bible does not support or condone slavery. In fact, it opposes it. To say that the Bible is pro-slavery is not only objectively false today, it fails to take into account the audience to which the Bible was written. The way the Bible talks about slaves and women and children, all three uh, people group statuses are just radically elevated in comparison to the culture of the day in the Bible. And so sometimes we look at what the Bible has to say about different people groups, and we think, wow, that's really oppressive in comparison to our world today. And then you realize that in comparison to the world that was, that was around them, the way that the Bible treats marginalized people groups gives them an elevation and a dignity that was seen nowhere else in the world. And you might say, okay, slavery was different, but slavery's still bad, right? No matter what it is, slavery is still bad. Why don't the biblical writers oppose slavery in their letters and instead tell slaves to submit to their masters? Why do they do that? Well, to answer that question, you need to understand the social structure of the ancient world. And it was rooted in this understanding of the household. And the household relationships, which were slaves to masters and wives to husbands and children to parents, as one commentator writes, order in the household was the fundamental basis for a strong and orderly and prosperous society in the Greco-Roman world. She goes on to note, because of the importance of the household relationships for social stability, religions introduced into the Roman Empire by foreigners were judged in large part by whether or not they complied with the expectations of household relationships. And so the goal of the New Testament writers was not just to upend societal norms. That would simply have served to get everyone killed or totally ignored in every possible way before they even got a chance to tell people about Jesus. Instead, she writes, the author's exhortations concerning the nature of Christian relationships, they're focused on bringing glory to God and forming a winsome witness to an unbelieving world. Peter especially is concerned that the freedom of the gospel be expressed in the Christian household in such a way as to not provoke unnecessary accusations against Christianity. Instead, subtly rejecting the premises of the Greco-Roman society that were not compatible with the gospel. In doing so, they will accommodate and subvert the existing social structures of the day. You see, the instructions that the New Testament writers give to their audience, it doesn't just have this life in view. It has eternity in view. The New Testament writers like Peter, they oppose slavery and they oppose oppression and they encourage people to gain their freedom if possible. Freedom is better than slavery always. But what's even more important and what they actually have power to do is to live differently in the midst of an unjust society. And in doing so, to reveal a gospel and to reveal a good news that is radically different than the way that the world treats people. For many people that Peter is writing to, their situations never changed. In fact, many, many Christians in the Roman Empire were killed, but their deaths and their commitment to Jesus as, and to his kingdom and their lives, which shone brightly as a contrast to the world that was around them, led many to be convinced about the truths of the gospel. See, the gospel is good news, and the way that we're called to live in light of the gospel is good news for us, and it's good news for others. And it gives us incredible purpose and meaning even in the midst of unjust suffering. The gospel is good news always in all times. 
So let me just wrap up this section quickly and we'll get back to the text. There will always be parts of the Bible that we struggle with because the Bible is pointing us to God's view of the world, not our own view. So there will always be places in the Bible that our hearts struggle with. But I don't want a misunderstanding or, or a, a misapplication of God's word to, to subtly kind of undercut the authority that you think that the Bible has. And the life, kind of life that God's word calls us to is really difficult to live. It is absolutely impossible if the Bible isn't true and isn't good. It's impossible. And so my heart is that as we understand the nuances of God's word, that you would grow in your confidence and the authority and the trustworthiness of God's word, and you'd see it as good news to put yourself under the authority of it. So back to the passage, verse 18. Christian slaves are called to submit to their masters. For us, the most comparable context would be Christian employees submitting to your bosses. Again, slaves in this day were kind of like employees with limited rights, not slaves like plantation things that we think of so much. And two things I want to highlight about our calling to submit to the authority in the workplace. One, we are actually called to submit to authority at work, even to unjust authority. We're called not to submit to bosses that we like working for, but we're called to honor and submit to bosses we hate working for. Even the ones that are unfair or harsh or unjust, the word Peter uses to describe some of these masters, he says, sometimes your masters are harsh. That word literally translated means crooked or perverse. Some of you have, or some of you are, working for those kind of people. Your boss is crooked. Sometimes the people that we work for, they're out for their own gain. They'll do whatever it takes, including lying or stealing or cheating or running over others or using others, stealing your work or your ideas and taking credit for it as their own. People said that the re- Peter says the reason that we do that is because we're slaves to our own passions and our own desires. But we're still called to honor and submit to those kind of people at work. Why? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless you realize that the point is not them. All of this section, last week and this week, the next two weeks, all of it is about submitting and respecting authority, human authority. And verse 11 and 12 are the context for all of that. Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they would see your good deeds and they would glorify God on the day he visits. Peter says, submit to your masters, even the ones who don't deserve it, because there is an incredible testimony in serving and submitting to someone who does not deserve it, who is unjust, and who is unfair. It flies in the face of everything our world says about how we are to interact with authority. What it does is it demonstrates the king that you serve. It demonstrates the true king, the good king, who served you when you did not deserve to get served the one who has fundamentally changed you at a heart level. Edmund Clowney, one commentator, he writes this. He says, responding this way to unjust treatment offers an incredible opportunity to show the uniqueness 
of Christian service. A crooked or perverse master may repay evil for good, but when a Christian bears that evil patiently, he has broken the chain of bondage in the power of the Lord. He shows that his service is not really forced, but it's voluntary, that he is willing to serve a master for the Lord's sake, even to honor him for the Lord's sake. His master cannot enslave him because he is already a slave of Christ. He cannot humiliate him for he has already humbled himself in willing subjection to the Lord. The gospel proclaims a different message. Now let me be clear. What this doesn't mean is that you never speak up at work. You never give suggestions. You never try to make things better at work. You never stand up when you see wrong things happening. No, like I said last week, it's about our tone and our posture as we do those things. When you disagree with your boss, when you give suggestions, does your tone or your posture reveal like that you have a subversive attitude, that you are always doubting everything that they're doing, that you're trying to kind of get your ideas in and trying to subtly disrespect that person? Or does it reveal that you support what they're doing? Does it reveal that even if you disagree, that you want to better what is happening in your workplace? We need to give input in in a submissive and honoring way. And then if your boss doesn't take your advice, you still do what he says or she says. You can think that the way your boss manages or communicates or leads are unhelpful. You can think they're even bad at their job. But instead of complaining behind their back or talking down about them to others, you can submit to their leadership and seek to contribute to the flourishing of the environment in the place that you work. And you can seek to control the thing that maybe is the only thing that you have to control, which is your attitude. You see, the environment that you foster at work matters more to the kingdom than what you make. The environment that you foster at work matters more than the, than the products that you make. It's easy to get sucked into gossip or slander about a bad boss, but as Christians, when we honor and submit even to bad bosses, we reveal that our citizenship is to a different kingdom, not to one of this world. And that might be really confusing to your coworkers or to your boss. That might be really confusing. When you honor and submit to a boss and your coworkers like, Why would you do that? He's totally not worthy of it. Just spoiler alert, that's what you want. Because you want an opportunity to declare the gospel which you have demonstrated in your actions. You want your actions to be different from the world that is around you in so doing, giving you a chance to tell people why you do it, why there is good news behind it. So we're called to submit to authority in the workplace. But Peter goes on, the second thing, we're called to do good even when it leads to suffering. The tone of the words here has to do with a moral tone. To do good is in the original language. And in all, so in all matters of work that aren't about morality, we submit to our bosses. But like I mentioned, Peter says here there is an ordered allegiance. Verse 18 articulates this. We're first to have a reverent fear for God, which means we're supposed to worship him. We're supposed to care most about him and what he thinks. And then we're supposed to respect and submit to human authority, to honor and respect, but not to worship it. It's an ordered allegiance. And this safeguards us from any whack job, extreme circumstances that people might try to think up about how that could get abusive. Remember Joseph. Although uh, Potiphar's wife was in authority over Joseph as the head of a household that he was in, he didn't sleep with her when, he bas- when she basically commanded him to do that. 
His first allegiance was not to his employer, was not to his boss, it was to God. And he was unjustly punished for his righteous actions and his allegiance to the Lord. But Peter tells us that those kinds of actions, that kind of suffering is commendable before God. Verse 20, if, if you suffer for doing good, sometimes doing good and doing the morally right thing is not seen as good by the people you work for. Because sometimes it might convict them of their own sin or their own heart issues. Sometimes it makes people feel guilty or feel ashamed when they see a good news gospel being lived and they see their own lives not measuring up to that. It makes them second-guess themselves or feel insecure sometimes. And so even though you are doing good, sometimes it appears to others as it's like not good to them. And Peter says, don't get in trouble for being a bad employee. There's nothing honorable about showing up late, about doing a bad job. There's nothing honorable about like disrespecting your boss or doing subpar work. He says, if you're going to suffer, do it for doing good. Suffer for honoring the Lord and for respecting him, for giving your life over to him. Let it be for being faithful to him. Let it be for refusing to cheat or to break rules that your boss explicitly or implicitly says that you should. Let it be for standing up for other people who aren't standing up for themselves. See, ultimately, our submission to authority at work, even unjust authority, is not about us. It's about God. You see, because sometimes your boss does not deserve respect and submission. But Jesus always does. And Jesus has earned it. And so we respect and we submit to our earthly authority, even in the workplace, because we're respecting and submitting to Jesus as king as he has asked us to do it, so that we might bear a winsome witness for him, showing the world a good news kind of gospel, a gospel that treats people as though they don't deserve to be treated, which is just the way that we have been. Verse 21, Peter reminds us of our calling as God's people who are for the Lord's sake, for the gospel's sake, are to honor and submit to even unjust authority. But he goes on from there. We're not just called to this. He says, you're free to it. You are set free to to honor and submit to even unjust authority in the workplace because Jesus is your example and he is your savior. Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to honor and to submit to unjust human authority. One commentator writes this way, Peter points to Jesus as the true model for how to live a significant and dignified life of freedom, even in the midst of oppressive situations. Jesus was the most unjustly treated person ever. Jesus never sinned. He never lied. He was perfect in every way. He healed the sick. He did not start rebellions. And he was put to death. Peter describes Jesus' response to his unjust treatment this way. He says, even though he was hurled insult at him, he didn't retaliate. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When you and I, when we're treated unjustly, our default response doesn't look like that. Let's just be honest. (laughs) What we want is, we want justice immediately. Or sometimes we want revenge, right? Or we talk badly about the people who have hurt us. Or we try to stretch the truth about the situation to make sure we look in a good light and the person that's hurt us looks in a really bad light. And you look at Jesus' example and none of those things characterized him. You see, if we're honest, what we realize about the response that we often have to that is that it reveals that we still live like slaves. 
You're still living like a slave and we're not free because your thoughts and your actions and your emotions are being dictated by what someone else has done to you. That's not freedom. That's like the definition of slavery. Jesus' example shows us how to be free of that. It says he trusted the true and ultimate and just judge, and it freed him to even die for people who hated him, who mocked him. J.D. Greer says it this way, people's sins will be paid back in one of two places, in either hell or on the cross. Every sin, every injustice that has been done to you, committed against you, will be paid for either in hell or on the cross. And so we do not have to take responsibility for that on ourselves. And that's what Christ did. He entrusted himself to God. The only way you escape bitterness, the only way that you escape the urge for revenge and for retribution when people treat you unjustly and treat you unfairly, it's not just, the world says just forgive and don't acknowledge the offense. The world says just like, yes, just do the, do the good thing and just forgive. And just forget that anything ever happened. But like that destroys relationships because that just builds bitterness. Because you can't actually just forget people's offenses against you. Now the gospel is altogether different because the gospel says, no, you acknowledge, you acknowledge the offense. And instead of getting bitter or instead of getting revenge, you trust Jesus, the, the just judge. You trust him to make all things right in his timing as he would see fit. What that does is it frees you. It frees you from that. It frees you from bitterness. It frees you from like wanting revenge. It frees you from that like insatiable need to be right and to get justice immediately. And what it frees you to do is love and serve and submit to people who don't deserve it. And the good news is that God is a just judge who you can trust to make things right in the end. You can trust him to make things right. And I guarantee you, he will do it better than you or I ever could. He is impartial and he is just and he is absolutely good. What that does when we entrust ourselves to him is it gives us hope in the midst of trial, knowing that all things will be set right one day. It means that sin will be punished, so we don't have to punish the sin of others by demanding justice or by getting revenge. Instead, we're free to forgive and to love and to show grace, knowing that God will judge justly, and he is a better judge than we are. You see, there is freedom in following Jesus' footsteps. There's freedom in following his example. But just, you need to hear this. Jesus is not just our example. Jesus is our savior. Eben Clowney, again, he writes, Christ's suffering is our model because it's our salvation. It doesn't simply guide us. It's the root of all our motivations to follow, our living to righteousness. It follows in Jesus' footsteps because we have died to sin. If Jesus is just our example, then you stand condemned. Like, it's not good news if Jesus is just the example, because if Jesus is the example, you measure your life against his, you do not compare. You don't measure up. It's not close. It's not like, oh, that's a good idea, and I'm like kind of getting there. No, you're not close in any way. But Jesus is not just an example. Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior, and so we are free to follow his example, not to be condemned by his example. He bore our sins on the cross, verse 23, and he, by his wounds we are healed. 
As past, one pastor reminds us, we were the rebels who resisted authority, the servants who rebelled under our rightful master, the unjust ones who rejected the rightful rule of God. And Jesus was the Lord who submitted to death, the master who became a servant, the rightful ruler who suffered our injustice. And by submitting to our injustice, submitting to be murdered by the people he created, he redeems us back and buys us back. You see, we're free to honor and to submit even to difficult bosses because Jesus did the same for us in exponentially more extravagant ways. He served you and I in ways that are exponentially less deserving of. We do not deserve the king of the universe to come and die for us. There's nothing about us that deserves that to happen. So Jesus sets us free to submit and to work unto him as the most free we could ever possibly be. We're no longer slaves to our own desires which bleed us dry and just leave us longing for more, always unsatisfied, unfulfilled. We don't have to keep working for a sense of identity. We don't have to worry about our identity shifting or changing, whether what our boss thinks about us or how our career is going. No, you have all those things already in Jesus so we're free to do good and to honor others and to submit to even unjust authority, even when it brings about our own suffering, because Jesus proved that we could trust the just judge to be good and to be just. And when we trust the true judge and it brings to bring justice, it frees us to follow Jesus' example, and it frees us to be shepherded by him. See, we're free to be sheep then who follow in the footsteps of the good shepherd, even through unjust suffering. When, when, when on the outside, when you look at Peter's commands, you think, that sounds really dumb. That sounds really dumb to just submit to unjust masters. That sounds like a terrible, terrible idea. And on the outside, it looks like that's only going to go badly for everyone involved. But the good news is that God is the good shepherd. And even though from the outside it looks confusing and it looks like it doesn't make sense, the one who has created and ordered the universe has directed and said that the most joy that we could possibly have doesn't come from a self-fulfillment. It doesn't come from a gaining or a demanding of our own rights. No, the most joy we could possibly have comes from submitting to even unjust authority, following in the king's footsteps himself. See, God's not asking you to do something he never did himself. He's not asking you to do something he didn't even do to an exponentially more degree than us. And he's not just saying, I think this is a good idea. He's saying, I know it's a good idea because I designed it and I did it. You see, Jesus is the, he's the good shepherd. He knows what we need. He's the good shepherd who gives his life, who laid his life down for the sheep. And he heals us from our deepest needs, the need of dealing with our sickness and our need for a savior. And Jesus is the suffering servant that Peter quotes in the last part of these verses. He quotes out of Isaiah 53, by his wounds we have been healed. Karen Jobes, one commentator, just, just, this lady is brilliant. She writes this really helpful. She says, the fatal physical wounds of the suffering servant they heal our fatal spiritual wounds. You see, it's Jesus' death on the cross, in our place, 
for our sins on our behalf. That's what sets you free. It's nothing else. It's just him. So Jesus is our example because he is our savior. Without him being your savior, he just condemns you because you don't measure up. You already stand condemned. But because he longs to be the savior, he's good news. And his example is good news because he saves you and sets you free and he empowers you to actually live it out. That kind of freedom doesn't exist anywhere else. Because we're called by him, we are saved by him, we're set free to submit and to honor even unjust authority at work. As we close, I just want to invite us to ask a few questions as we think about what it looks like for us to actually grow in our obedience to God and our obedience to his word. One, are you actually free to submit and to honor authority at work? Or are you still a slave? Jesus died so that you might be free. Come to him, the good shepherd. I just, the Bible talks about God as a good shepherd, and his shepherding doesn't just mean he just like hangs out in one spot and wait for, waits for sheep to come to him, and then he just like, oh, I'll pet you on the head. No, the good shepherd means that the good shepherd goes out and he finds and he seeks the lost sheep to bring them in. God is the good shepherd. He goes out to find the lost sheep. Maybe you realize this morning that that is you. Now you are a lost sheep. And you realize that your situation at work with your boss is hard. It feels like pointless and purposeless and hopeless. And you feel like you're stuck. You're stuck in a slavery that you need rescue from. And your boss isn't the slave master. You are your own slavery to your own passions and your own desires and your own need to be fulfilled and satisfied by stuff that can never do it. And you need to be healed and you need to be rescued from slavery to yourself. You need the gentle and secure care of a good shepherd who will lead you into freedom and life that you really long for. Come to him. He's calling you that you would come. Some of you are here this morning because Jesus, the good shepherd, is pursuing you. Jesus, the good shepherd, is coming for you. He is longing that you would come. He is calling for you to come to him. And his invitation, his call, is not to a life that is free from suffering. It's even better. It's to a life that has joy in the midst of suffering. It's a joy that is real and is true. And it's what you actually need. Because this world is full of suffering. It will always be. There is no escape from that. But there's joy in being shepherded by the good shepherd and the overseer of your soul who knows what you need and longs for your good. And so I would invite you, come to him. The way you come to him is by submitting and surrendering to him first as the true king and the just judge. And if you've not come yet to God that way, I plead with you to not wait any longer. Come to him. He is what you need. He is where the freedom to actually live is. Secondly, where do you need to grow in submission to authority at work? 
Are your actions and attitudes and behaviors characterized by honoring and submitting to authority at work, or are they characterized by a subversiveness or an uncooperativeness or bitterness or jealousy or rudeness? If so, ask God to remind you about the gospel and all that he's done for you, all that he has forgiven you of, all that he has set you free from, and how much you didn't deserve that. And then ask him to give you a heart that can respond in humility and in gratitude and in joy to that. Ask him to enable you to have a bold and winsome witness to him, the true and just king. Maybe some of you need to go and apologize to your bosses for actions or attitudes or ways that you've been relating to them at work. And maybe when you come and apologize to them, they won't even be aware of like being offended. <laughs> They'll be like, oh, I, didn't, I don't know. That's fine. I don't care. I don't see anything. One pastor I listened to, he just said this, just really helpful. It's places like that that we as Christians should be unique. We should, sense, we should have a sensitivity to wrongdoing in ways others don't yet. Because our view of what is right and what is wrong is not based on what people see or perceive, but it's based on what God sees and perceives. Lastly, where do you need, where do you need to grow in doing good? Maybe you honor and submit to your bosses at work but you need to actually grow in doing good. Where are you scared that doing good might actually cost you? In standing up for someone or in acting in a certain way? Maybe you have business trips or maybe you have options or opportunities to travel or do things with your work. How you relate to your coworkers, how you represent people, how you do those things, even when you're away from the office. How do those things honor the Lord? How do they reveal that you're not just about submitting to your boss, but you're about doing good? Sometimes the way that you live and the way that you act might be viewed as other people as weird. And Peter's not saying just be weird for being weird's sake. Like, that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is to live as though Jesus has called us to, to be good news to him. So maybe there are ethical concerns or other things that you need to stand up and you need to voice against. I just want to be just straightforward with you. It's not like this super clear-cut black and white thing. Most issues at work like, are, are not just like issues of moral right and wrong. Like, that's a pretty relatively rare circumstance, right? And so there's a lot of things as we seek to honor the Lord and honor our bosses that can be kind of just like confusing. And you know, like, how do I do this well? How do, I, how do I honor the Lord rightly in all of this? And the invitation is like, bring that stuff, bring that stuff to your small group. If you have questions about that, bring it up in your small group and ask like, what do you guys think? What do you think it would look like for me to live as a Christian in this way? What advice do you have? Like, how do you think I should go about this? Can you guys be praying for me as I seek to be a good witness for Jesus in the midst of all this kind of stuff? In a few moments, we're going to remember our new identity as we take communion. It's an identity that calls us to freedom, and it calls us to life, and it calls us to all those things in the midst of difficult situations. Communion is a picture, it's a reminder for us about the gospel, and the bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life we couldn't live, and the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And communion doesn't make you right with God, it doesn't save you. Places like 1 Corinthians 11 articulate those kinds of things. The only thing that changes our status or our standing with God is faith in Jesus himself. Instead, Taking communion is an opportunity for us to remember the gospel, the gospel that's given us a new identity and a new calling and freed us to live into it. 
And so when you're ready, the bread and the juice are in the back, and you just go and you take the bread and you dip it into the juice. And as we sing and as we worship, whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if that's not your identity yet, if you are still seeing what it looks like to follow him and you're pursuing that, and then I just invite you to hold off on taking communion and instead come to the good shepherd and trust yourself to him. He is what you need. Before you take the elements, receive him. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks that it's not just an old and antiquated and outdated book that oppresses people. God, thank you that your word is relevant and life-giving and true throughout all ages. Thanks that it's good news in the midst of every circumstance and situation. God, we just humbly ask that you'd cause us, that you'd empower us by your spirit to imitate you as we live lives of submission and honor and respect, even to unjust authority at work, so that you might receive glory and so that we might bear witness about you and your kingdom. In your good name we pray all these things. Amen.